special report. Knowing how to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility, record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money. So welcome everybody to this episode on Sunday, the 18th of February. And uh, before we meet, obviously we always have a quick chat and just like the show notes that I rushed together today. And funny enough, we always joke, we blink in this day and age and something else has happened just like a kind of a dreaming with genie or just in various time traveling movies. And I had thrown together this show notes and so much had happened that I had forgotten about the Munich Security Conference, obviously the, the death of a prominent Russian dissident. Um, so our times remain so remarkable. And if you thought Tucker's highlight of the year was the interview with Putin, well, so certainly that will be one of them. But the interview that followed up right after with um, the, I think, CIA um, analyst Benz, or probably he was even higher rating than just none of us, was even more remarkable. But it all ties into this week's podcast, and I'm going to chuck it straight over to Fabian. The Munich Security Conference, always a source of geopolitical mischief and interesting developments. Fabian, what should have grabbed our attention um, this week? Over to you. Okay, thank you. Um, good to see all of you. Um, and as we always say on this podcast, you know, you're not sure what's going to happen the next day the next week so as always we have great things to discuss so munich a couple things about munich first of all i think for the viewership uh, it's really important to understand that next to davos and the um, the uh, world economic forum the munich security conference is quite an interesting gathering place for especially american elites that have the security background. So in other words, if you come, if you go to Davos, you, it's usually the economic crowd mixed with the political crowd. In Munich, you have the, especially the political, anything to do with defense and foreign policy crowd that meets there. Uh, it was founded back in the 60s by Ewald von Kleist, um, a, um, a officer in the Wehrmacht who was part of the uh, 1944 resistance plot to kill Adolf Hitler. So you have um, a noble background, honorable background, and it Munich developed more and more into basically a talking uh, space for global elites to gather to discuss foreign policy, to discuss anything that has to do with security issues relating to the world. Actually, Lucas and I once attended uh, the uh, Munich Security Conference in 2019, where we got to see Ben Hodges, 
which um, Lucas, you can say more about that. Well, but... I, I had the honor of hosting Ben Hodges. That's right. Like, that's right. Those are pretty fun, though. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of those events where you know you 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 usually you will have all these nice uh, talking point discussions. And people will gather and then, you know, American generals will talk about their commitment to your European security and being the greatest ally ever and all that stuff. And then you see, like, I don't know, a four star standing there where like a two star is holding his his bag. Right. And um, and all of these other um, people are just gathering there to have nice uh, champagne dinners. And it's it's so it's quite the elite gathering. I remember actually we were once at a at, a, at an event where where Madeleine Albright stumbled basically into us after she was promoting one of her new books. This was probably one of the last books she written, but uh, something that I will probably not read. But anyways, um, so Munich. Um, Munich is, is, is a fascinating, fascinating conference, but uh, it's always something to keep an eye out. And that's actually was, I don't know if they concluded right already, but um, uh, the Munich Security Conference just took place. And Interestingly enough, too, one thing that um, I think is something that fascinates me more and more, if you study the structure of elites, um, you notice that Western elites are very much interlinked. And they're, 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 they're usually what you'll have is like the German elite will invite their U.S. counterparts. And so in Munich, I mean, on, on Friday night, they had something called the Freedom Night, where all defenders of freedom gathered and you you had uh, representatives of the media uh, and representatives of the u.s foreign policy establishment and the german government and members of the german foreign policy establishment gather there i mean there, there's there's one photo that i saw a little snapshot of a guy in the background that just it this guy continues continues to mind boggle me. It's um he's a member of the Biden administration, Amos Hochstein, a deputy assistant to the president and senior advisor for energy and investment. This guy was touring. I remember um, U.S. German think tanks warning against Nord Stream two, basically already talking about Nord Nord Stream being a very bad idea. Well, he was actually on the advisory board of uh, Naftogaz, a Ukrainian gas company. And this is a guy that works for the Biden administration. Um, anyways, the, the point that I'm trying to make is Munich is, is, is interesting in the sense that um, here you have quite an example of the interlocking of the German and the U.S. elites coming together uh, for their talking points. Now, Amidst the Munich Security Conference, what happens? Uh, we get the news that the uh, Russian resistance leader, Alexei Navalny, died um, in, shall we say, a gulag, a, a, Russian, a Russian prison camp. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, Navalny's wife is in Munich at the security conference to actually deliver a little statement. Uh, stating that Vladimir Putin belongs uh, in an international court, etc. Now, the situation with Navalny is something that I cannot judge in any way or form. I do not have any um, facts to this. All I know is that he died, and and that has been confirmed. However, um, it is 
still open what implications will follow out of this. I mean, Russia is a mystery wrapped inside an enigma, as as Churchill once said. Um, and uh, it, uh, it it it's I mean, we shall wait to see what will come out of this. I do have to say, though, however, what the Western media is doing is propping Navalny up to be some kind of a Western pro-ally uh, savior figure. <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised if in the next months we're going to see some kind of, you know, I don't know, renaming of streets or plaques or the Navalny Square or whatever. You, you, you might see that. But it is important to remember that he, too, was very much in favor of Russian interests. And, and, and his position on Ukraine was not as, I, shall I say, aligned with what the West believes. So he, too, had his Russian nationalist positions. But he was in opposition to Vladimir Putin. And he made that clear after being poisoned, uh, going to the German Charité Hospital in Berlin, and then volunteering to go back to Russia to... Uh, now die in a gulag, something that he assumed was very likely to happen, and it has now happened. And I think that um, we are, um, yeah, as I already said, it's it's quite out in the open to see what happens. I mean, it is still February. February is a revolutionary month, as is October. So who knows? Anyways, um, I will hand over to Lucas to see and to well, hear um, your experience from Munich and your thoughts on Navalny. <coughs> Thank you. So, well, I've had the honor of uh, joining the Munich Security Conference three times, actually, in 2017, 18, and 19. And in 2019, we actually... Have now you're the... becoming suspicious. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I actually even had a side event that was on the uh, MSC's uh, webpage. So if that, doesn't, if that doesn't tell you everything, then I don't know. Um, no, but honestly, it's always been a very pleasant time as long as you're part of this establishment with keeping some, you know, mental distance to it. I think Fabian um, summarized it pretty well. You know, there's um, there's some gathering for the public. Obviously, you know, you have uh, Vladimir Zelensky speaking and you have people ask, um, what would you tell Mr. Trump if he had a chance to listen to you? You know, it's like this is like the most scripted question ever. It's like, come on. Um, but basically, um, it's like an iceberg. You see the top, but there's like, I think four fifths of it are underneath the waterline. So you see the public events, but everything that's happening surrounding it, um, these are the interesting things. that are semi-public or non-public discussion events. They're like uh, special podiums and panels. I think Microsoft um, hosts things, some banks host things. So it's like, <clears throat> It's like Davos, but for security politics, basically. Um, from my point of view, I think it's good that people do meet. Um, it's always good that people talk. And, you know, the, um, Chairman Wolfgang Ischinger, who hosted this for, like, I think since the mid-90s, um, who used to be the German ambassador to the United States, um, he was always in favor of keeping the dialogue open. So, you know, even back in the days when... Um, the relations between um, Russia and the West, um, let's call it just the West, were kind of um, freezing. It was still expected for Russia to appear. To I think um, Dmitry Medvedev um, appeared in Munich, you know, was trying to calm down certain issues, etc. So it kept the dialogue alive. So I think this is this is pretty much of a positive thing. But um, for all the things that happen behind closed doors, um, I can't really tell you because I've never been part of any closed door society, obviously. Um, 
the interesting thing from our point of view is though that um, from what I can tell from friends who attended this year and also from like the interested public on X and what people like what experts in the security field say, this year's music security conference turned out to be quite a bummer. Um, there's a lot of criticism against Israel. There was um, a lot of criticism um, against Russia, obviously, but someone summarized it and it was like, um, there was more criticism against Israel than at Russia. So they were very disappointed. I think coming back to the whole Navalny thing, um, I don't I don't think that Putin was sending a message because um, the fact that Navalny was already in prison or in Gulag, basically, um, that was enough of a message, in my opinion. Um, I can't really tell why Navalny died exactly at this point. Um, we know that the Russian elections are about to happen in some weeks. And I mean, Russia is not a, like Gerd Buda, the German chancellor at one point um, called Vladimir Putin a flawless Democrat. Um, I'm not sure whether I would consider the Russian democracy to be completely flawless as is close to no democracy. I think the Swiss democracy would be the only one that comes to mind that has like literally close to no flaws. Um, but I think even, even without um, mixing up some polls and even without um, inf like even without stuffing ballot boxes uh, like we saw some years ago, I think Putin would have won this race. So I can't really tell why um, Navalny had to die at this point. I think they were like, I think the official statement from the prison administration was like that Navalny had like, um, I, I don't blood know. Clot. He, like, blood clot. Pardon? Blood clot. Blood, yeah, blood clot, like died during a walk or something or following a walk outside. And there's some reports that he had like bruises and stuff. Like, I assume that, like, I think that people are getting beaten up in Russian prison, full stop. Like, um, I just fear that this time they beat him up so hard that he died. Um, yeah, that's all I can say to this. Like, I've been to Russia, excuse me, um, I've been to Russia in 2019 and the country is an interesting one. Um, I just think that we should we should never we should never forget that the Russian take on individualism and the value of of an individual life is a completely different one um, than compared to the West, which is simply related to Russia's history and the fact that Russia is said to be a country that needs to keep on expanding or else it will explode uh, implode. And everyone um, who puts themselves in between Russia and its goals. Well, will either be crushed or will crush Russia, as Lenin did, for example. Probably that might be a good one. Before I've got a couple of thoughts on the and, and questions to you guys about the Munich Security Conference. But since you mentioned Navalny, we don't want to breeze too too quickly past it, um, since it is it is uh, tragic. And and um, Todd, you know more about the whole subject matter, and you've got a, probably the best appreciation what. How to read this? How do you read the? Yeah, well, you, you have to um, think of this in a much bigger context because I always look back to around 2008 to the Russo-Georgian War, and you know, and I'll just preface this by saying I, you know, you don't have to agree with Putin, but you need to understand him, and the uh, he, he runs a an oligarchy. He is a tsar. He is. You have to think of this in that context. And yes, the human life means nothing in Russia um, in that. Um, so he is running a theocracy, which has done a lot of, although he has recovered the economy, they think it is a more of a global macro context 
from the 90s. He did recover the Russian economy and they have a much better lifestyle. But the, the journalists have been shot. Nemtsov was killed right outside the Kremlin, you know. All, you know, so they are very brutal in opposing the opposition, just like a czar would do with his uh, Oprichnina, which was the gang that surrounded him during the czarist days and would take out any opposition, any, any noble or whatever, they would skin him alive, that kind of stuff. So you have to think of this in that context. And you have to, in the Russo-Georgian War, I think Putin realized that the West was just like him. It was like looking in the mirror. He's like, these guys are corrupt. Th these are an aggressive... Uh, you know, expansionist entity that I have to protect myself, my rule, and my country from. So he started arming, and that's when Georgia happened, and then a, a dominoes effect. Also, Hillary Clinton put 100,000 troops in the street, not troops, people, Russians, in the streets of Moscow trying to do a color revolution against Putin, and he doesn't forget. So thinking of all of that in this context, the death of Navalny, in my point, and I'll slightly disagree with you, Lucas, I think this was a message not to Biden, but to Hillary Clinton and the whole cabal that still are trying to take, and that's Vicky Newland, all of that, the whole cabal that is trying to take Putin down. This was like F you in your face. And, um, you know, all you have to do is when people complain about Navalny, you say, oh, you mean like hundreds of political prisoners being tortured and rotting in prison, like in DC or with no due process, you know, trying to destroy your political opposition, put him in jail for 700 years. So we have no moral authority anymore. And this is just a very real politic time. Um, and the fact that it was one last point, Brennan, the classic CIA guy who is working for the other team, put out a tweet a couple of years ago, which I actually wrote about. And he said, wouldn't the world be great if the United States was run by Joe Biden and Russia by, uh, you know, Alexei Navalny? So that told me all you needed to know right there that Navalny, even though he was, I think, legitimate in his opposition to Putin, yeah. was helped and abetted by the CIA. Interesting. And, oh, sorry. And, and the fact that his wife is going to Munich just confirms yeah. that. Interestingly, th there's one more thing that I'd like to um, tell the audience about um, Alexei Navalny. And that's the fact that um, back in the days, like 15 years ago, no one who's mourning um, Navalny now would have agreed with him at all. Navalny was basically a Russian fascist. Navalny was um, was appearing in these um, Russian marches, and there were like uh, Russian neo Nazis um, there. So it's yeah. like one one really has to say that. Navalny and the whole boys group in Ukraine, um, they, would, they would really like each other. You know, it's like yeah. um, you can the watch the videos. Italian right. and like um, all these, they're basically Nazi LARPers. This is yeah. literally Nazi life action role playing what they're doing in Ukraine now. But so I just like to point this out um, to the viewers and listeners that um, you should be interested in Navalny's past. Um, not not saying that this diminishes any of his opposition to Putin or something. It's like um, he he's had a right to his own opinion, and I mean, I think being being a patriot and being a nationalist um, does at times like there the line of separation might be pretty hard when um, or might be pretty hard to abide by when the country that you're in um, does not really allow for any um, let's say solid patriotism but only pure nationalism. Well, you know, the, the, the only reason Hordakovsky was allowed to leave was because of the Olympics. Otherwise, he'd be dead in prison, too. And, yeah. you know, he was the guy that, that ran Yukos that um, yeah. Putin utterly destroyed. So you've got three in a row, Nemtsov, Hordakovsky, and Navalny. 
and you can go down I mean, string, string of journalists who were shot and killed too. So uh, and a bullet you mean, yeah. yeah. Hey, you Um, this is a, uh, a repressive regime. Yep. Again, you have to understand them. And, and uh, I, I think all of this was a big FU to the cabal, not, nothing to do with what's going on. Today. But I'll say we need to keep the dialogue running. The fact that yeah. there's no one from Russia at Munich Security Conference anymore um, is worrisome. And did you see that, that, I think it was Channel One, the head of Channel One in Russia today said uh, he wanted to interview Biden. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we <laughs> joked about him on this, this channel, so people are clearly listening, which yeah. is good. Um, probably one one thing um, to dig in that so the number two thousand eight came up time and again, and funny enough, keeps coming up for me this week. So early on Thursday, I went out in, in Vienna for a couple of drinks with a couple of friends, and as you do, you start talking to people in a pub, and it turns out it was a Russian guy who had his opinion on Putin, which which was uh, what differentiated what you would think. So he's like, look, the situation was absolutely terrible in the 1990s. And then 2000, Putin came into power and he said he was great hmm. to tell you the truth. Me and my family were literally starving. And and a lot of the chaos, the gangs, the, the overt the overt sort of um, mafia structure, the, all the overt criminality, the theft of Russian stuff, the buyout by by Western um, actors, he's like he put a stop to that, and I, I really was on board with him. And he said, but something changed in two thousand eight, and that's where like a flip got switched. Mm -hmm. And then let's dig into let's 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 establish the nexus with the Munich Security Conference. You mentioned Georgia, that that mm -hmm. was roughly two thousand eight, and in two thousand eight at the Munich Security Conference, it was then announced that you know the likes of. Um, Romania were admitted into NATO. It was, and that was the first time where the idea of getting Ukraine into NATO got floated. And that's why this Munich. And, and remember, that was a year before, a year before in 2007, Putin had already delivered that famous speech, which, by the way, I recommend every viewer to listen to, where he delivers his case and his perception of how he sees the uh, global US empire. I mean, that's that's his, I mean, that the, the famous words of, of that uh, speech are basically that he sees the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest um, disaster of the 20th century, which many people make out <clears throat> to be that he's some kind of a Soviet revisionist or an imperialist. Whereas, uh, for example, John Mearsheimer would always say, no, 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 no. All he said was that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a great security threat to Russia. If you under, want to understand Russia, you always have to understand that Russia will always expand as much as possible to protect its heartland. So he, that's how he saw that. And it was a year later in 2008 in the Bucharest uh, summit where the, um, the initial um, uh, decision was made by NATO 
to say we're going to admit Georgia and Ukraine. And it was it was Merkel and Sarkozy at that time, France and Germany, that had uh, doubts and said this is not good. But in the end, uh, the uh, Bush administration, um, George George, I mean, this was this dates back to George W. Bush um, said, no, 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 we're we're going to go through with this. So again, and and by the way, too, I mean, this is this is sort of the um, the uncanny and and unfortunate way that the U.S. foreign policy establishment uh, operates. And that's something I remember, uh, was it uh, Kagan, Robert Kagan, whose wife, by the way, is Victoria Nuland. I remember he said he was so happy that, you know, that he's advising uh, Mitt Romney and Hillary Clinton or something like that. And that's because the U.S. foreign policy establishment, they, they, they just there's basically no difference. And that comes to show you that decisions that the Biden administration carries are, are the same admin are the same decisions that the Bush administration or the Clinton administration in previous years would do. So you just, you having a, a two party or a, what people describe now as the uniparty system comes to show you there is the evidence for their modus operandi, the way they operate. There is no difference. And these decisions, especially the security decision uh, to expand NATO um, from a Russian point of view is seen as a threat. I will also say, though, however, that, you know, you will always have the Eastern European countries that have their own opinion. And that's very reasonable due to their history with Soviet Russia. But Christian, back to you. Yeah, no, I think it is an excellent point that you made. So, I mean, on the one hand, because we're always under suspicion if we try to be differentiated to being Putin shields. And I think we've now made it abundantly clear there's a lot that we don't agree with. Also, that in terms of NATO, that, you know, none of the Eastern Euro uh, Central Eastern European states were forced into NATO. It's not like NATO uh, encouragement worked by us taking them over uh, by force. Nonetheless, I mean, you, you put it out so succinctly. So here we've got a security conference, which is the shop window of the world's security establishment thinking. And then in one year, the one guy who kind of brought Russia back on track as a serious actor in world politics in 2007 seems to be warning uh, like this is where I draw the line. Then the next year, not only do they overstep that line, but put in Georgia. And I mean, we've totally forgotten about Georgia. I mean, I would kind of put Georgia almost it's tiny, but I would put it akin to a Cuba moment, like really, really close to to, to everywhere, to the central Russian heartland. And it's also so the only Christian country in the Caucasus. Yeah. And so, so mm -hmm. it's absolutely fascinating what, what they tried to pull off, but they were still used to a very much a, um, um, unipolar world where the U.S. just uh, just just did as, as it pleased and the rest um, just accepted. And then probably even then the writings were on the wall. It, it was no longer going to be a multipolar world. It's never a good idea to, to antagonize a country for a long time because, as we see, empires rise, empires, there's an ebb and flow. And they, they will remember when they're on the up again and you're on the down. And that's let, let me correct myself. Armenia is also Christian. But there's a bigger thing going on here, and I'll be quick. But if I told you guys the background behind Victoria Newland's last name, Yes, the, the new land. The, the yeah, it's, it's actually a Nazi slogan. 
like yes. free, the same with Christia Freeland in Canada. That their last names are different, and they were changed yeah. after the uh, Ukrainian immigration. They're from Western Ukraine, and it's a Nazi free the land from people you don't like. So this has much bigger context when Russia's looking at. So you have a woman who is aggressively trying to take down Russian influences in Ukraine and elsewhere, who has a literally Nazi past. So it's fascinating. But but just just to to make one point, you know, because I've in in so many instances I've had this this political philosophy debate with with so many friends, and where I always ask the question. How should, for example, Germany or France operate? How should what should be the function within the alliance? And I think that this question, the the Ukraine question, the the Russia question, um, is is a great example of how um, Germany should have behaved. I remember uh, just by the way recently listening to General Harald Kuyat. He was the uh, former. Um, Uh, uh, chief of staff of the German Armed Forces and chairman of the NATO uh, military committee. And he has been um, very open uh, about the fact that we have to uh, have some kind of a dialogue with Russia. Uh, Lucas, you, you, you said that just a second ago that it was unfortunate that no representative from Russia was at the Munich Security Conference. But the point is that back in 2008, um, you know, having a, a Germany that would have stood up in geopolitical interests, in, in a Bismarckian style, and said, enough is enough. We've had our uh, quagmire with Russia in the past. We have to find a different solution of how to solve this. NATO has its boundaries. We 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 have served some kind of a purpose. But if we're going <clears throat> to go ahead in the future, we have to um, find a new way to, to, to understand what our goals and operations are. I remember, you know, in 2001, it was the Russians that were very open to fighting uh, terrorism together with the West um, against uh, Islamic jihadis. So um, it, it, the whole unfortunate thing about the situation that we're in is that some leaders were just too cowardice to stand up. Some countries were either too weak or too... I mean, with Germany, I would always say Germany was unwilling it was unwilling to take a stand unwilling to step up to the u.s foreign policy establishment within the alliance to say no this is our backyard we're going to handle it by ourselves um and unfortunately with the 2008 um result um john mearsheimer rightly says so that the europeans are basically the stepford wives uh, of the uh, um, uh, foreign policy establishment in in washington Uh, so decisions about Europe are not made um, in Berlin or in Paris, but they're made in Washington. And I think that's a disaster. That's I really true. do. That's true. I'd like to point out just one point, um, like from a more humoristic point of view, because I think uh, we're like bouncing back and forth from the uh, security conference topic. Um, while we're all not shilling um, Vladimir Putin, there's one thing that I do absolutely shill for, and it's tasty. That's it. Um, I don't know whether you've seen this uh, interview with Tucker Carlson and whether you've seen the the report when Tucker goes to uh, Russian McDonald's, which is now called Vkusno um, Itochka or Tasty, that's it. And I've, I've seen the menu and the menu is fantastic. Like you don't even need to speak Russian. You just need to be able to read Kyrillic letters. And it's just like uh, things are called like um, chicken burger 
or you can order a grand or nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally nuggets and curling. Well, um, my so, favorite thing in Moscow is the business lunch. Yeah. And they literally <laughs> spell it in sort of like business yeah. lunch. It's like, um, <laughs> like uh, when I was a teenager, at one point, um, I, I, was, I found myself in Belgrade um, at an electronics store, and there's, they were selling a MacBook, M-E-K-B-U-K, MacBook. <laughs> cool. Oh, yeah. That's how it should right. be spelled and branded forever. Um, Didn't want to be real, though. No, no. Um, I, I think um, we've dwelled on the security conference topic. There's one last question before I want to segue into the German censorship regime that's rolled out. Since you guys actually have been, I'm going to call you insiders, insiders at the periphery of uh, the Munich Security Conference. Um, are you aware, is it, so it doesn't strike me as an organization like the WEF, where there's very much, or the Tony Blair Foundation, where there's very much a permanent staff and a permanent organization. It seems to be an ad hoc event that combines insiders from uh, throughout the world, or uh, like, what, what, what is the, the permanent structure of the, of the Munich Security Conference like who runs it are you are you aware of it How yeah i mean it us? used to well it as it, it was it was it was run as i already said earlier by um back in the day ewald von kleist um who then handed it over to horst telschik who was the former um foreign policy advisor of helmut kohl and then it was given over to wolfgang ischinger i would say these these um three men were always in the realpolitik realm they always believed in dialogue uh discussion inviting those that you don't agree with um munich has always had a a uh an image of being very blunt um open talk and there's going to be no protocol no um you know any any military honor so you you're not gonna you're not going to give people some kind of a pomp and circumstance by the way that hotel room it's a it's quite a small room where they meet in um it's the 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 speakers the guests they yeah. the delegates they have to basically walk through the kitchen to get into the to the room um i would i mean there's there's fancy hotels but this, I mean, Bayerischer Hof is is nice, but it, I wouldn't even say it's like a, it's like the the nicest hotel that you think of, some kind of a grand hotel. Um, but anyways, um, th so the permanent structure has been very oriented towards um, Realpolitik. Um, I always thought they were very good at that. However, they have now hired um, Christoph Heusken to be the uh, head of the Munich Security Conference, and here's a guy who was Merkel's former uh, foreign policy advisor and German ambassador to the UN. Um, and I've been personally very critical of, of Heusken because he's always, I mean, he's he's the kind of guy that, that has propagated and pushed for certain uh, policy initiatives that have now driven the world into um, the situation that we're in. He's very critical of, of the Israelis. He's, I mean, he's, he seems to be very ideological driven. So there again, you see with, with, the, with the shift in personnel that Munich too has the possibility of, of, of becoming some, somewhat of a Davos in that sense if, if they continue down the line. As soon as they... So my, my point is if, if they lose that edge of inviting guests that they don't like, Munich will turn into a bubble. 
um, where you will only have the naysayers uh, hear what they want to, yeah. and it'll become another platform, as it already is in that sense, developing into a platform. You know, I don't know where the Ian Bremers uh, uh, basically write their speeches and hand them over to to the next politician to just state it. So, yeah, I, I think this point has already been reached. To be honest, okay. like um, yeah. the like get, getting an official side event to the Munich Security Conference is darn hard. Um, so you need to be personally affiliated with someone at the MSC itself. It's like to get this official badge of being a side event. And it's like, I, I know what I'm talking about from 2019. This has been kind of a hassle. Like, um, it, it's fun once you once you get there, but like you could not do uh, anything that's skeptical of the US um, and be like, yeah, I want to do an official side event in doing so. Like, um, back in the day, I was hosting um, uh, former General Eric Bad, who, who used to be Angela Merkel's um, security policy advisor in the first, um, like in the first Merkel government. Um, Christoph Möhling from DGAP, the German Association for Foreign Politics, and Ben Hodges. And I think, like, when we got the confirmation from Ben Hodges, they were like, "Oh yeah, of course you can do a side event. We're going to support you." And that's like, yeah, you know, this like five years ago. So we fall. We've all changed. Um, we've all changed viewpoints. We've all gotten more intelligent, right? Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I think that that helps the viewers appreciating what the Munich Security Conference is and what it isn't. Um, last, it's good that these things do happen. I think they would just need to be more open for like additional stuff as well. And I like. I'd appreciate if there were Russian politicians as well. Like, there's always a whole delegation of American Congress people who go there. There's like, I don't know, 10 senators and 30 um, members of the House of Representatives. Oh, yeah. I mean, Nancy Pelosi stumbles in and out. Yeah, it's like, it's like, um, they they used, uh, sorry to be so like impulsive now, but there's one point where Volodymyr Zelensky was asked something. And at this point, he was like, um, yeah. Are we being filmed? Because I'd like to, I'd like for this not to be public because I'm talking to the to the member of Congress in person after. And I was like, I was like, gee whiz, come on. Like he, he doesn't really know the rules of the game, does he? Yeah. Todd, you're on mute. I mean, he's getting his rear whooped now anyway, but um I was just going to say, I, I, I wonder how American contractors are being seen at Munich because you've had the whole Boeing situation. And uh, have you guys seen the dream team that Boeing uh, had designed? The yes, Ford? I have. I'll just play that for our audience. <laughs> this is yes. the dream team, the Spirit Aerosystems, who designed the door who yeah. blew off the plane. Let's go, girls. Oh, you go, girls. Come on. Sorry, I you know what? You know what? This is why I love. This is why I love Airbus. It's a boring company that brings together the best from Europe. It brings together French imagination. It brings together the German seriosity, um, Italian love for detail, and I don't know what the Spanish do in there, but for some reason they produce really good wings for airplanes. But I don't feel well, they found out that there were no bolts installed on the doors. So oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, it really works really but, well. But seriously, the bolts like, didn't inspire any dolts or uh, <laughs> any goals, right? Uh, so. But seriously, it's like, um, 
I, I think the German Air Force by 1945, when they were building wooden airplanes that still were close to the sonic order, they were in better quality than what Boeing is producing now. I mean, I'm going to geek out the Heinkel 162, the one with the one turbine on top of it, the Volksjäger would have easily beaten, beaten that. But uh, probably um, geeking, having geeked out for, for a second. So but refocusing on Germany, which, which is sort of our, our core bit and core obsession by, by, by uh, life and association. Interesting. So we've got this minister and she's a supremely um, unpopular woman. I think she's got a disapproval rating of 60 percent. Which minister? Pardon? Which minister? And uh, a lot of them do, but Mrs. Nancy Faser. Oh, and Mrs. Faser, I, 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 um, I mean, yes, and indeed. I mean, she failed a major election at home in Hesse, and now she tries to tell the rest of Germany what happens if you actually vote for the wrong party. Like, what undemocratic steps do we need to take in order to to save democracy? And before I hand over to you, Lucas and Fabian, because she's dreamt up quite a number of things and that comes obviously not out of a vacuum that comes on the foot of the Digital Services Act that we've mentioned once or twice on this podcast, where essentially the European Union takes the liberty. If you are a social networking company or any sort of platform online beyond a certain size step you need to take to moderate content or you're going to have a sizable chunk of your annual turnover taken. So. It is interesting before I hand over to you guys, because things that we've just mentioned seem awfully connected. A lot of things start happening from that year 2008. And we had an interview, yet another interview. Again, we're going to blink and, uh, and um, Tucker will, will have an unbridled access to Joe Biden straight next to the, to the crypto freeze where they keep him for most of his days. <laughs> but the other day he was on... Um, with a guy called Mike Benz, who seems to be understanding the uh, intelligence. Fantastic interview. Yeah, the, the in, I, I think probably the much more from the content, the much more important interview than Putin's interview. And um, where he gave us an insight into how the intelligence state works and how what it used to be to do on the outside can very quickly turn inside. And we've seen a certain learning curve of the current German state when it came to the to the pandemic. Um, and we've recently seen that some of the lessons were applied when, when we said, look, all the farmers protests and first smearing the farmers as fascists didn't quite work because, well, they're not. People understood their grievances. Everybody likes the farmers. Then they quickly said, yeah, but they're associating with neo-Nazis. That didn't quite stick. But then you had, as we mentioned in the last episode, the domestic um, intelligence service infiltrating a conference and passing it on to a dubious Soros-funded uh, NGO with the name Corrective, which again, <laughs> you couldn't, couldn't put, write it up in, in that way. But now we have Mrs. Faser riding high on that wave. The government successfully shifted the conversation from farmers and their legitimate grievances to, hey, really dangerous Nazis, we had all kind of astroturf protests. Again, Lucas last time had the, uh, the, the astute observation, there are only very few countries where people demonstrate pro-government against the opposition, and we all know very few of them are true um, uh, democracies. But now Mrs. Faser, as this weren't enough, she, she, she dreamt up new 
corrective measures, as it were, to save democracy. Our world is changing rapidly. Many crucial systems we depend upon are collapsing. And the most important system that is failing is the food supply. Mr. President, this council is more than aware of the multiple challenges and threats the world is facing today. But the threat of famine, people starving slowly to death, must be a red line. You know, these food prices are going to keep going up and up, and they're going to keep feeding excuse after excuse, narrative after narrative. Yeah, where so you're going to have, have to get off that treadmill and start getting more autonomous with your own food growing. You want to make sure that you can eat, because frankly, food is the biggest issue as we are going through these transitions. But amidst the chaos, there is a path to resilience. Marjorie Wildcraft is the female leader of the survival and preparedness movement. Marjorie has taught millions of people how to grow an abundance of food in a grid-down situation even if you have no experience, are older, or out of shape. I've spent decades finding the fastest, easiest, and funnest ways for the average person to be able to grow a lot of food. I've created a step-by-step -step process that's so simple that even kids to elders have been using it in order to grow a lot of their own food. And you can too, even if you have no experience, you're older or you're out of shape. Growing your own food is like printing your own money. Get started.